0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith. And you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person.
1: Welcome back, Dr. Ben Reinhardt. My talk tonight is on the literary aspects of the Psalms, but I'm just going to lay out the background, what we're talking about when we look at the Psalms, we'll do some preliminaries to reading the Psalms. I want to go over a few of the really important literary techniques you'll see in the Psalms. And then finally, I want to put it all into practice in reading one or two Psalms if we have time. Does that make sense? Alright, very good. So first of all, very, very simple introductory notes. It's really good to take a step back before we launch into the study of the Psalms to make sure that we're all on the same page or be all on the same psalm. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, if you've got different versions of the Bible. You will find that your psalm texts don't always match up. There's a really good reason for this. Um, The reason is we've got two very, very important early witnesses to the Old Testament. We've got the Hebrew Masoretic text and we've got the Greek Septuagint. The relationship between the two is pretty complicated. Uh, The Masoretic text is passed down from the times before Christ into the Middle Ages. The Septuagint was completed in the second century, probably B.C., by a group of Jewish scholars living in Alexandria, Egypt. They're both very, very important. We can't get rid of either one of them. But they don't always agree. And one of the areas where they don't agree is in how they number the Psalms. So if you look down, this is the first little thing on your handout. We're all good from Psalms 1 through 8 in both versions of the Old Testament. Septuagint, Masoretic texts agree. We're good on Psalms 148 through 152. They agree there. (laughs) Everything in the middle is a mess, right? The mess starts because what the Septuagint has as Psalm number 9, the Masoretic text has Psalm 8, or Psalm 9 and 10. So, what this means is, from Psalm 11 in the Masoretic text through the 113th Psalm, we have one higher. Okay, so the 23rd Psalm in your RSV or your New American Bible is going to be, what? It's the, the, the Lord is my shepherd, yeah, right? But, but if you do the Douay-Rheims or the Latin Vulgate, that's going to be 22, alright? So, and, and there's the confusion. Latin Vulgate, Douay-Rheims, they follow the Septuagint. Most more recent translations will follow the Masoretic text. You have the conversion table in front of you, so we can all sort of follow along together. One other quick thing that I'll say about the Book of Psalms, because it's a good thing to know, it's not critical for our talk tonight. We tend to divide the Book of Psalms into five separate little books of their on their own right. So, Book One is Psalm 1 through 41, then 42 through 72, 73 through 89, 90 through 106, 107 through 50. One of the reasons why we divide these up is if you go to the end of the Psalms, at the end of the books, if you go, say, to the end of Psalm 41, you get something like this. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. If you go to the end of Psalm 72, you've got, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May his glory fill the whole earth. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended, right? So they all, each, each little book ends with its own doxology. And what this does is it turns the Psalms into five books of its own, which mirror the five books of the Torah to make the Psalms sort of a self-contained Torah of praise. Okay? It's a nice move. It's very, very nice. All right. So that's the background to the Psalms. All right. Now, I'd like to say a little bit on some important ideas before we get into literary interpretation. Alright? We're going to take Alexander Pope, the 18th century scholar, critic, and poet, as our guide here. I I do this in my classes at Christendom. We're doing it here tonight, too. A perfect judge will read each work of wit with the same spirit that its author writ. Alright? So, if you really want to understand a work of literature, What you've got to do is, you've got to do your homework, you've got to look at who the author was, and you've you've got to try to read it in the spirit in which he wrote it. Alright? So, what this means is, if you're reading a satire, you can't read it as though it's simply straight-laced and very, very serious. Jonathan Swift doesn't want you to eat Irish babies, right? If you've read The Modest Proposal. Right? If you're reading poetry, you can't read it as though it's prose. If you're reading prose, you can't read it as though it's poetry. It's it's actually a very simple principle once you understand it. It's complicated when we're dealing with the Psalms, though, because when we're dealing with any biblical text, there's a question of who the author actually is. Right? And this is where we bring in the dogmatic constitution on sacred scripture, uh, Dei Verbum, from the Second Vatican Council, The books of both the Old and the New Testament in their entirety, with all their parts, are sacred and canonical because written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they have God as their author. Oh, fantastic. God's the author, and we know what God wants, right? He desires our salvation. In the book of Psalms, we know uh, if we're going to read the Psalms along with the mind of the church, he's talking about his love and the covenant to the people of Israel, if we're going to read them like St. Augustine does, and like many many Christian uh, exegetes do, they're the prayer of Christ. They're the prayer of Christ as the head of the church, right? So when we read the Psalms, this is Christ speaking as our head, and these are his experiences, all right? So that's the spirit that the author intended. Well and good. But then we roll on. In composing the sacred books, God chose men... And while employed by them, they made use of their powers and abilities so that with him acting in them and through them, they, as true authors, consigned to writing everything and only those things he wanted. All right? Now, this makes our life a little bit more complicated because we don't just have to deal with what God intended. We have to deal with what the original authors intended. This means that we have to look at things like original genre. We have to look at things like, if you go down to the end of the quote, the particular circumstances in contemporary literary forms in accordance with the situation of his own time and culture. So, if we're going to read the Psalms properly, we're going to have to start with, we're going to start with their human authors, okay? We're going to start with the human authors, then we're going to go into the particular aspects of their time and culture, then we're going to go into literary techniques, and then we're going to wrap up by looking at the Psalms themselves, all right? So, first big thing that we're going to deal with is who the author actually is. And this is another area where the Book of Psalms is just difficult. Because if you read your inscriptions to the various psalms, you know that we're dealing with more than one author. You'll have Asaph, right? You'll have the sons of Korah. You've got two psalms associated with Solomon, one associated with Moses. But of course, our, dominance, our dominant author of the psalms is... Exactly, it's David, right? And the question of Davidic authorship is a tricky one. Um, There are a lot of scholars, probably most biblical scholars today, would say that David, no, 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 he he didn't really write the Psalms. The arguments are too complicated to go into tonight. I'll only say a few things. First of all, whether David wrote them all by himself or whether they were written by committee, for the purposes of revelation, it doesn't matter. God can work work by committee. We can't, but God can, right? Where... (laughs) He can write by committee if he wants to, and it's still inspired, alright? So, on the one hand, it it doesn't really matter. On the other hand, even though it's obvious that David can't have written all the Psalms, because there are Psalms that refer to things that happened hundreds of years after he died, like the Babylonian captivity, right? David can't be writing about sitting by the rivers of Babylon or anything like that. That doesn't make sense. But, David could be writing about most of these other things, right? And when it comes to all those things that David could have written, and you've got the psalm text associated with him, it makes sense to me to take the earliest readers as a guide. And both the early Jewish readers and the early Christian readers had no doubt in their minds that David was the author of most of these psalms. Okay, And to be honest, if it's good enough for St. Paul, if it's good enough for the New Testament, if it's good enough for the the early rabbis who are commenting on these things, it's probably good enough for us tonight. So, we're going to move on on the assumption that David is the author because I think, I think we can be fairly safe there. Okay, that's the question of authorship. Now, what about the question of original context? There are two intended contexts that we can draw from the book of Psalms themselves. Alright? On the one hand, the Psalms are written for private prayer and private meditation. If you look at, uh, let's say, Psalm 130, I will bless the Lord at all times, right? And other Psalms. The idea is we want to praise God continuously. We'll praise him on our beds at night. We'll praise him when we wake up in the morning. They're written in that way for our own private recitation and prayer. Okay? That's very, very important. But maybe even more important than our own private recitation in prayer is this second purpose. They're written for liturgical worship. That's how they're always used. They're sung in the temple at various occasions. They're sung as songs of thanksgiving in the temple. They're sung as part of pilgrimages to the temple. Psalms means songs. That's the the Greek psalmoi. It's a psalm. uh, It's a song. Of course, it's a psalm. They're songs for worship in the temple. And you get this shot all through the psalms themselves, right? Uh, If you look at Psalm 150, the very last psalm, praise him with the trumpet sound, praise him with the lute and harp, praise him with the timbrel and dance. They're meant to be incorporated into the worship of God's people. And from the indications of the psalms, they're incorporated in a very lively way (laughs) into the worship of God's people. One uh, prominent psalm scholar says that we need to get out of our heads the idea of sort of like these solemn processions and we need to think more in terms of a folk dance, right? There's always something of of the folk dance when we're dealing with the way the ancient Israelites would have uh, would have celebrated these psalms. Now, that's the liturgical context. It's how they've always been used. It's how they will continue to be used. I want to impress on you that this liturgical context is critically, critically important. Only by keeping in mind that these things are meant to be prayed in the temple, they're meant to be prayed by the community, to, community together, and they're meant to be prayed with this set purpose, can we avoid some really serious and embarrassing and fatal mistakes in interpretation of the Psalter. You, you may not believe me, I, I'm going to give an example to prove the point. And I don't like to give this example, because generally speaking, I really like C.S. Lewis. But his Reflections on the Psalms is one of the worst books he wrote, it, it is. And in his Reflections on the Psalms, he calls the 23rd Psalm Petty, Vulgar, and Hard to Endure. Alright, the 23rd Psalm. And that, that, that's surprising. I mean, I, I imagine if I took a show of hands, the 23rd Psalm would be one of the most popular psalms in the audience here tonight, right? It's certainly one of the most well-known. Ha! Petty, vulgar, and hard to endure. What? He didn't like sheep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sheep stink, right? <laughs> Fortunately, he's not biased just against sheep. Uh, the, reason why, the reason why he says this is the verse, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. That's Lewis's problem. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Here's how he reads it. He takes it to mean that the... Poet David has this nice banquet, and you know he's got some rivals. You know he doesn't like his neighbors or whatever, and they've got to look on. They've got to see, and they hate it. And the poet knows it, and he enjoys it. Right? You, you buy the new car, your neighbors envy it, and you really feel good. Right? That's how Lewis reads it. He says um, the poet's enjoyment of his present prosperity would not be complete unless those horrid Joneses who used to look down their nose at him, were watching it all and hating it. That's how C.S. Lewis reads this psalm. Now, even if we were talking about having a nice barbecue in the backyard, I think we could argue with Lewis, and I think he would still be wrong. But given what that verse actually means, Lewis isn't, he's not wrong, he's not even in the ballpark, okay? Because the important part of that verse is not so much in the presence of mine enemies, but instead, thou preparest a table. What does it mean for the Lord to prepare a table for us? Well, if we think back to ancient Israelite worship, okay, if we think back to what the temple was and what the tabernacle was, we can make this argument. This is, the, this is how most scholars read the 23rd Psalm today. When talking about God preparing a table before us in the presence of our enemies, they tend to say what this means is, well, the temple was used for many things. It was used for worship. It was also used as a court, right? Um, You think of Jesus in uh, the Sermon on the Mount talking about agreeing with your adversary when you're on the way going to court. You're going to temple to hear the judgment, okay? So the idea is, you've been hauled before the judge, okay? You've been hauled before the judge at the temple, You're nervous, you don't know if you're going to be guilty or not, but you've been, you've been arraigned of all charges. You're free, the favorable verdict has come down. When that comes down, what do you do? You have a sacrificial banquet to thank God for setting you free. Okay? And that's what it means to have a table in the presence of your enemies. They were here, they were here to get you, and praise God, not guilty comes down. Okay? And if that's what, if that's what it means... All of a sudden, it fits perfectly with the rest of the psalm, right? The rest of the psalm is all about God taking care of you and God protecting you and God watching out for you in danger. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, right? It's the same thing. It's not nasty. It's not vulgar. It's not petty. It's beautiful. But you get that beauty if you know what the original context is. Alright? Does that, does that make sense? So, with respect to C.S. Lewis, he's just simply... uh yeah. Simply, simply wrong. All right. There's... He writes very, very well on most things. The Psalms, even Homer nods, even C.S. Lewis writes a bad book. Okay. Now, that takes care of context. Now, if we're going to follow De Verbum, we need to look back at the particular circumstances using contemporary literary forms and in accordance with the the situation of his own time. I've put before you, the Psalms are poetry, they're lyric poetry. But to most of us today, they don't look a whole lot like poetry. We think of poetry in English, and you think of... you think of rhyme, right? We, We like our rhyme. Maybe you don't like rhyme, but we still like things like set meters. We like iambic pentameter, you know, so Milton can write 12 books and hundreds of pages. All in this nice iambic pentameter, da 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 and rolling on, right? These are the things we think of in English. In the Psalms, you don't get that. Uh, there's some meter and so in some of the Psalms, but it's not consistent. Rhyme, rhyme's not something that we worry about. Instead, our big poetic technique, the dominant poetic technique in the Psalms, is this thing called parallelism. So on the second page of your handout, we're going to be dealing with parallelism. Uh, Holman and Harmon's Handbook of Literature defines it as an arrangement such that one element of equal importance to another is similarly developed and phrased. More simply than that, it's what the Catholic, old Catholic Encyclopedia says: it's the balance of verse with verse. Most verses in the Psalms have two lines. What we like to have is the first line to be balanced out with the second line. All right. There are a number of ways that this can happen. More than four, I'm going to walk you through four. All right? The first one, the one that you'll notice most quickly, is this thing that we call synonymous parallelism. All right? That's the first example. The second line restates the idea of the first in very similar terms, or the practice of saying the same thing twice in different words. That itself is parallelism, synonymous parallelism. Right? The examples from the Psalms, I do not sit with the false men, nor do I consort with the dissemblers, Psalm 26.4, right? I'm not associating with the evil guys, and I'm not associating with the evil guys. We state the same idea in two different ways, because you can say something once, you might as well say something twice, all right? I joke, we'll come back to synonymous parallelism in a second. You also have antithetical parallelism, which is the opposite of synonymous parallelism. So, if in synonymous parallelism we say the same thing twice, in antithetical we say the exact opposite, right? Some boast of chariots and some of horses, but we boast in the name of the Lord our God. They will collapse and fall, but we will rise and stand. And it gives you a really satisfying contrast so you can see what the wicked are doing and you can see what the, what the righteous are doing, and that's how that tends to be used. If you read the book of Proverbs, you'll see that antithetical parallelism an awful, awful lot. Uh, synthetic and or climactic parallelism. It's a little bit trickier. This is where the second line develops and completes the first line. I fear no evil for you are with me. Why do I fear no evil? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Okay? And finally, we're going to go down to chiastic or inverted parallelism. And this one's a lot of fun. So, hmm, a chiasm, it's a repetition in reverse of something that comes before. The word kayak, K A Y A K, is itself a chiasm, right? You're repeating the, the first elements, K A, in reverse order, A K, in the second half of the word, all right? The word ABBA, like the 70s disco band, also a chiasm, A B B A, okay? So, that's chiastic parallelism. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So, we've got I being brought forth iniquity, sin, conceive me. So we repeat in the, the direct opposite, right? Ask not what you can, what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. It makes for a nice sort of satisfying nugget of thought, a nice complete nugget of thought to, uh, to chew on. Sometimes the chiasms will go beyond one verse. If you go down to the bottom there, therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation. For the Lord knows, the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We go wicked, righteous, righteous, wicked. All right, it gives you this very satisfying self-contained thought. So, those are the four big kinds of parallelism. I don't have a lot of time, but I talked a long time on parallelism and I talked a long time on parallelism because it's really, really important. I'll restrict myself to three things that I'd like you to remember about parallelism, okay? The first thing is, it was really nice of God to write the psalms in parallel structures. Here's why. It's providence, really. Robert Frost says that poetry is the stuff that gets lost in translation. Okay? And if you think about it, you'll see why it is. If Shakespeare writes this really nice Shakespearean sonnet with all the rhymes and the nice meter and the ten syllables per line and all that, what happens when you translate it to German or Italian? Or Latin, right? You lose all those nice figures of sound, you lose the rhymes, you lose the meter, you lose everything! And not only do you lose those things, you lose the meanings that the poet communicates by them, right? Same thing's true, you know, if you're trying to translate Homer into modern English verse, you lose, you lose that nice dactylic hexameter and all the meaning that comes along with it. So it gets ugly and you lose the point, all right? But the Psalms written in parallelism, parallelism is the one poetic device that can translate into any language without too much difficulty. Because all you have to do is balance the words against the words, and the thoughts against the thoughts, and you still have it. So God gave us, through the old Israelites, a type of poetry that can go the world over, and we can, it can still work. That's nice, all right? But it's not enough that it translates. We've got to get something out of it. And here's what I'd like you get to get out of it. The first thing that parallelism forces you to do is to slow down. If you're like me, you tend to skim, right? You tend to sort of zip along pretty quickly. You can't do that with poetry, and you especially can't do that with poetry that's set up in these parallel structures. You get one line, uh, I do not sit with false men, and then you get that same line from a slightly different perspective, so you're forced to think about it a little bit more. Nor will I consort with the dissemblers. So it forces you to deal with this complicated truth from a couple of different angles, and it helps you see it more clearly. Does that make sense? And also because of this it's a real aid to meditation. You slow down, you reflect on the meaning, and you sort of chew it over and you get more out of it. Alright? Here's the final thing to know about parallelism that's just really beautiful. It allows the poet, it allows David or Asaf or whoever, to develop ideas at a greater length. And they do this even when it seems like we're saying the same thing twice. If you go to that second example of synonymous parallelism down there. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. All right? God, I like your house. God, I like your house. That's not what he said, right? O Lord, I love the habitation of your house. That's nice. That's a fairly general image. It's referring to the temple or the tabernacle. But look at that second line. The place where your glory dwells. Ultimately, we're we're referring to that same building, right? Right? St. John the Beloved and McLean, right? That's what we're referring to. But we're calling forth a new part of that building that we're going to be thinking of, the place where God's glory dwells. That's the Shekinah glory. That's the glory of God which dwells in the temple with the Ark of the Covenant between between the cherubim on the mercy seat. It's God's mercy. It's God's faithful, enduring love for his people. It's all called up by the place where your glory dwells. That's not the same thing as saying, God, I like your house. God, I like your home. Right? It's, it's a different type of poetry and it helps you see what the poet sees in that house of God. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. All right. So, we've gone through, we've gone through the different types of poetry we're dealing with. We've gone through some of the terms. Let's actually look at a psalm because we've got just a little bit of time left and I like the psalm. So, let's do psalm number two. All right? As I'm reading, pay attention to the parallels, parallels. Look and see what you see there. Why do the nations conspire, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds asunder, and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord has them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, and terrify them in his fury, saying, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, with trembling. Kiss his feet, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. All right. Obviously, a lot of parallelisms going on in that psalm there, right? Both in the first and second half of it. And... Oftentimes, the parallelism is used to really intensify the emotions, right? Let us burst their bonds asunder and cast their cords from us. It's one thing to burst the bonds. We're talking about rebellion against God here, right? Bursting the bonds bonds is one thing, but casting their cords from us, that's a more striking image, right? The same thing's true of verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. Well, that doesn't sound nice, but you shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's considerably worse, right? So he's using the parallels to intensify the images that he's giving us. All right? But there's something else that's interesting here. If it's interesting where the parallels show up, it's just as interesting where you don't see the parallels. Because, listen, great poets will use the conventions of their time, but they'll also they'll make use of not using them if that makes sense, right? So Shakespeare usually writes in a very nice iambic pentameter, ba-dum, 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 ba-dum. If all the status on Shakespeare goes, bum, 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 you wake up and you pay attention because he's doing something that he wants you to notice. He doesn't do that by accident. Look at this psalm. Verses 1 through 5, all perfect or near-perfect synonymous parallelism. Verses 8 through 10, all perfect or near-perfect synonymous parallelism. Verses 6 and 7, though, No synonymous parallelism. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That forces you to focus there on what God has done. He set the king, David in the original context, of course for us this is going to be Christ. He set, he's established the king and declared, you are my son, this day I have begotten you. That's the part that you're really supposed to focus on. That's the hinge of the poem. And you see this if you look a little bit more closely, right? It's framed by all the nice parallel elements. But what happens? We start off with the murmuring on the earth. The kings of the earth, the nations are all, are all rebelling against God. Right? And the murmur comes up. God's going to speak to them in his wrath and says, This is my son. And what happens after he, he, makes, the son, he makes the son known? Well, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. We're all brought to this peace and reconciliation with God because we've hinged on God establishing his anointed one, the king, the Christ, on earth for us. As we go towards Christmas, as we move through Advent, that's a very nice thought. Yeah? It's reinforced, by the way, by a really nice chiasm with verses 2 and verse 10. In 2, you've got the kings and the rulers conspiring against God. In 10, you've got the kings and the rulers coming back. That's a really nice sort of wrap up to that song, yeah? Okay, so that's how it works. It's a beautiful, beautiful song. We don't have time to go into Psalm 85. Your homework is to look at Psalm 85, look at the parallelism, and look at the images of God and heaven and earth. This is what you're going to be hearing on Sunday, by the way. So meditate on it before Sunday. Sorry, I'm sorry. Three more minutes, really, really, really quickly. I'm sorry. I'm a horrible person. All right. Now, I want to say very briefly what's gained by reading the psalms as, as lyric poetry, okay? Lyric poetry as a genre exists to do one thing in a big, big way. It exists to communicate an emotional experience, all right? The author is trying to communicate an emotional experience to all of us. So you read Philip Sidney's Astrophil and Stella. He's trying to communicate what it's like to be hopelessly in love with a beautiful woman who's way out of his league, all right? That's what he's trying to do. That's also what the Psalms are trying to do. They're trying to communicate an emotional experience. And lest you think I'm making this up, St. Athanasius in his letter to Marcellinus backs me up. The one who hears the Psalms, he says, is deeply moved as though he was speaking himself. He feels it himself and his soul is stirred because of it. Alright? But the special thing about the Psalms is this. Where, if we read Sidney or Shakespeare or Dante or Petrarch or any other lyric poet, we get their experiences and their emotions or something that they imagined. We read the Psalms and we get God's emotions and God's thoughts. We get the prayer of the Incarnate Christ. Alright? So, we get to feel the emotions of the Incarnate Christ as head of the Church, praying for his body when we when we read the Psalms. And we can conform ourselves to that. Alright? And again, unless you think I'm making this up, St. Athanasius says the same thing. When we pray the Psalms, we see in Christ's behavior a model for our own. We can find in the Psalms an echo to any emotion we might have and direct it and reorient it towards Christ. Now, with this, I should probably wrap up because these, because after all, I'm just the literature professor and I'm now talking about conforming ourselves to Christ and all sorts of things that are above my pay grade. I'll end with uh, Psalm 131 because, and take this message to heart. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Instead, I'm going to let Deacon Sabatino, who's much better qualified to do that, carry on with those things. So thank you very much.
2: What are we going to be doing now? Applying some of the things he's talked about uh, to the text itself and looking at the text from kind of almost from the inside. There's a principle in biblical exegesis a principle that says that there are two senses to scripture, the literal and spiritual. Uh, and what does the church mean by this distinction between literal and spiritual? What was the original intention of the text itself? Most of us, when reading the Psalms especially, but really when reading a lot of the scriptures, we tend to make a spiritual application immediately to our lives. It's a fundamental and, and, and a deadly mistake. It's a deadly mistake, because a lot of times we're going to pull a text out, which, which number one, wasn't written as an application to your life, number one. And not only that, it could be very much spiritually unenlightening, and we get frustrated with the text. So the most important point, which Dr. Reinhardt talked about at the beginning, is to try to get a sense of the original context in which it was written. What was the intention of the author? What was the intention of the author? And if we can gain that then we'll be able to see through the eyes of the author to to, uh, maybe that deeper application to the church and our lives. And we'll see that played out in the Psalms a lot, where we tend to apply the text to Christ and the church immediately without without ever asking ourselves, what would the Jew reading this at the time have seen and understood? And as Professor Reinhardt mentioned, The author of this text, now uh, not not all of the Psalms, but certainly the majority of the Psalms have traditionally been associated with King David. And I've talked with you a lot about this in the past, so I'm not going to belabor the point, but that the Psalms really should be read for the most part in the context of the life of David. Even those Psalms, which are not attributed to him as the primary author, can still be very helpful to see them through through his eyes for two reasons that he may have collected an earlier text, number one, okay. that may be speaking of an earlier time in the life of Israel, but that was written down in his lifetime as a catechesis for the people about the faithfulness of God, number one. And number two, he may have spoken a psalm that was then um, written down at a later time with a further application. But we can benefit by seeing it through his eyes originally. And we'll see some of that today. I'll I'll start with a quotation from Father Ronald Knox, which is one of my favorites. I'll conclude with this quotation at the end also, if I have time. He says that the Psalms of David, we call them. Certain scholars, learned people, would have us believe that this is a false title. The collection is only an anthology by various authors. It certainly does seem reasonable, saving the better judgment of the church, to suppose that a psalm written about the Babylonian captivity was written by somebody who had experience of it. But even if you allow for that here and there, common sense tells you that the bulk of the Psalter is King David's work. In the first place, because a great literary tradition does not grow round a man's name unless he really has some literary work to his credit. Imitators do not arise until there is something to imitate. You can trace David all through the Psalms. As Gerda's work is full of Goethe, David's work is full of David. You're haunted everywhere by the echoes of his breathless career. Here in the Psalms, we can discern, we can see so clearly the fingerprint of that great prophet of God, King David. I want you to turn to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. Why am I having to turn to 1 Samuel? Because it's in 1 and 2... Samuel that we see the life of David. And it's in that context we're going to be able to understand the poetry which Dr. Reinhardt spoke of. To be able to see the man who wrote these beautiful words down and why he wrote them. Outside of that context, outside of that context, the Psalms can be made to mean most anything. And unfortunately, unfortunately, when we try to make them mean something to our life, they fall flat. Maybe we find some sort of an inspiration here or there. But I'm here to tell you that if you read the Psalms properly, and that is through the eyes of the author, in fact, through the heart of the author, then when you apply them to your life, they will make a profound impact because they were the words of a man. A man who experienced things like you and I experience. And then we can have a true relationship with, with the Saint, great holy man of God who is King David. First Samuel, what did I say? Chapter 16? Chapter 16, verse... Oh, we'll just look at verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, "'How long will you grieve over Saul, seeing I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons.'" the prophet Samuel went to the home of, of Jesse and he said, bring your sons out. And he, Jesse lined his sons up and we pick up the story in verse six. When they came, he looked on Eliab, one of the sons of Jesse and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look. And I want you to remember this text. If you have a pen or a highlighter, you're going to want to underline this. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him for the Lord sees not as man sees. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on outward appearances, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab, and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made uh, Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And Jesse said, well, I mean, well, there's the youngest one. Now, I'm the youngest child, so I love this text. (laughs) There is the youngest, but behold, he's keeping sheep. He stinks. He's out there with the sheep. What do you want of him? And Samuel said, go and get him, for we will not sit down until he has arrived. Send and fetch him. Verse 12, and he sent and brought him. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. What kind of, how was he handsome, guys? Was he beautiful and handsome to men? To his father? No. But how was he beautiful? Yeah, who sees the heart. Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel, verse 13, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward from that day forward who was Samuel who was David that God chose him over his brothers what was it about David that God chose him over his brothers you tell me Why? yeah his heart absolutely but there's another reason also his love for God yes there's another reason also Ah, thank you. Thank you. This is why Henry's the chairman of the board of the Institute of Catholic Culture. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter five, verse one. 2 Samuel chapter five verse one. Henry, why is that going to be important? He's a shepherd, He's a shepherd. And why is that important? Tell him, it's okay. Why is it important that David is a shepherd?
0: Because our Lord is a shepherd and that kind
2: of How is our Lord a shepherd? What, and who do you mean by our Lord? Yeah, I want to just hold you back a little bit because we always want to go Jesus. Always want to go to Jesus. We want to stand in the, foot, in the feet of those that are standing there reading this text, hearing this text for the first time. Yeah, the, yes, the God, of course it is Jesus. Yes, there's no problem with that. But the God of the Old Testament is a shepherd of his people. Look at 2 Samuel. What what chapter did I give you? Chapter five. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, "Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you that led us out and brought us brought in Israel." And the Lord said, "You shall be my be shepherd of my people Israel." Yes, David was chosen because of two things: because he was a shepherd. And God did not need a king like all the other nations, like a dictator. God needed a king who would live out his kingship in the image and likeness of God. Who would shepherd his sheep, his people, and bring them into a good pasture. And David knew what that was all about. Turn with me then to Psalm 23 that Professor Reinhardt was speaking of earlier because we've oftentimes read this text um, and unfortunately, I think we've missed the point. As soon as we hear the first words, the Lord is my shepherd, we think Catholics of? Well, I think you actually think of a funeral, don't you? Don't you? (laughs) The Lord is my shepherd. I want you to read this as David would have written it. Read it through the heart of David, who was a shepherd boy, who was rejected by his father. Not necessarily rejected, but he was pushed out a little bit, huh? His brothers were in the home. His brothers were living the high life while he was out working, shepherding his father's sheep. The Lord is my shepherd, David says, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Some of you have been to the Holy Land with me. We've walked in the land where he walked. When we saw Boaz's field in the hill country of Judea, we've walked there. It's beautiful hill country. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Listen to David's heart. Even though I walk to the valley of the shadow of death. Imagine the boy out there shepherding the sheep by himself as the sun is setting and the shadows are being cast off the hills. What is the boy he- here in the woods? Here's the animals moving. You know what that's like. Even as an adult, you can admit it. I live out in the country and sometimes walking outside at night It's a little scary. What's out there? This is the boy David hearing those noises. The shadow being cast through the valley of the shadow of death. I fear no evil for thou art with me, Lord. What did David do when he was afraid? When he was out there by himself as a boy shepherding those sheep? What did he do? He prayed to God. For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they come for me. This is what God was looking for in a king, and this is why David was chosen. And this is the context in which we have to read the Psalms. The Lord sees not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearances, but the Lord looks on the heart. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is considered to be the foundation stone of the Psalms. In fact, Basil the Great, St. Basil the Great says, like the foundation in a house, the keel in a ship, and the heart in a body, so is Psalm 1, as a brief introduction to the whole structure of the Psalms. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. Who is blessed? Who is the man? Who is this man? Blessed is the man. Yeah. Yeah, it's David. It's David as each one of us would have written as his heart is being drawn to the Lord. If he can only live up to the calling which the Lord has called him to because he knows that if he lives the life of righteousness, he will be blessed by God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the ways of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. Here's Psalm 23. That yields its fruit in its season. Imagine the boy resting while the sheep are out in pasture next to that beautiful stream as he's praying to the Lord these words. Blessed is the man the man that David so badly wants to grow up to be for the for David the heart of this blessing the heart of this blessing from God was the covenant which God formed with him in 2 Samuel 7 and you can write we're not going to turn there you can write that down 2 Samuel 7 you should have that text memorized by now Okay? But I'm going to look with you at Psalm 89, which which repeats the same words. Take a look at Psalm 89. This beautiful covenant, which was so important not only to David, but also to all of Israel. Psalm 89 I will sing of thy steadfast love, O Lord, forever. With my mouth I will proclaim thy faithfulness to all generations. For thy steadfast love was established forever. Thy faithfulness is firm as heavens. Thou hast said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. A covenant is the joining of two people together. A man and woman is one flesh. God and man united together. Thou hast said I have made a covenant with thy chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your descendant forever and build your throne for all generations. This was the great hope which David had. The sign of the covenant between God and David was David's son. Who was David's son? Solomon and Solomon would build the temple of the Lord in which God would dwell in the midst of his people. As one commentator I was reading said, the Psalms the psalm is a god-focused book. It casts a spotlight on him as both creator and covenant keeper. And I stress those words to you. It puts a, a light upon the Lord as faithful to his promise. The Lord's love is steadfast and it remains forever. One of the greatest events in David's life was the moment in which he brought the Ark of the Covenant up into Jerusalem. You can turn, keep your hand in the Psalms and turn back to 2 Samuel 6. 2 Samuel 6. Verse 16. Verse 16. As the Ark of the Lord came into the city of David, where's the city of David? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. OK. As it came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. Turn to, to uh, Psalm seven, uh, Psalm 7 sorry, 132. Psalm 132. Turn to Psalm 132. Arise, O Lord, and go to Thy resting place, Thou and the ark of Thy might. Let the priests be clothed with righteousness, and let Thy saints shout for joy. For Thy servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of Thy anointed. Do you see? If we read the Psalms through the eyes and the heart of David, if we stand with David as he makes his way up to Jerusalem, if we sing the Psalms with David then we will be able to see them and read them as they were truly meant to be seen and read. Turn to 1 Chronicles. Just go back in your Bibles a bit there to 1 Chronicles 16. 1 Chronicles 16. What did David do when he arrived with the ark in Jerusalem? 1 Chronicles 16. And they brought in the ark of God and set it inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And they they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord and distributed to all Israel, both men and women, to each a loaf of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. Moreover, he appointed certain of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to to invoke, to thank and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. And notice the first one that's mentioned there is Asaph. Asaph will be one of the authors of the Psalms. Asaph was appointed in the temple to do one thing, and that was offer thanks and praise before the Lord. And what did that sound like? Look at verse seven. Then on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brethren. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. Make known His deeds among His people. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Tell all His wonderful works. If you want to read the Psalms, huh? because we're going to look at Psalms which repeat those exact same words. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good. We read those Psalms. We pray those Psalms. But if we stand with David in the tent of meeting... If we stand with Asaph in the tent of meeting before the ark of the Lord, then suddenly those words will be transformed for us. Because we know that the tent of meeting and the ark of the covenant was only a prefigurement, a foreshadowing of what God was going to accomplish among His people. But not all was easy for David. He faced many struggles. In fact, I'm not going to have you turn there just for the sake of time, but you can write it down in Second Samuel chapter 15. Chapter 15. Well, you got. I'm sorry, you got to turn there. You can't. I, you can't miss it. It's too. It's too. Um, it's too heart wrenching. Second Samuel chapter 15. Chapter 15 tells us. About Absalom, who was David's son, and his revolt against the king, and his de- declaration of making himself king while David was still alive. And what did David do in chapter 15, verse 13? And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom your son. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go in haste, let us, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down evil upon us, and smite the city with the edge of the sword. So David fled from Jerusalem. Come with me to verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. Some of you have, where is Tom Nally? Tom's walked up that mountain with me. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up, weeping as they went. Come to verse 32. Then David came to the summit where God was worshipped. Okay, so he comes up to that summit and he looks back on Jerusalem. He looks back on Jerusalem. He's destitute. And in this way, we can read many of the Psalms in David's suffering. Take a look with me at Psalm 3. Psalm 3. I know I'm having you flip back and forth a lot, but it's good exercise for you. Look at Psalm 3. Look at the title that you have there for Psalm 3. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. You know, imagine your son. Imagine fleeing from your son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying there is no help for him and his God. But thou, O Lord, art a shield about me. I imagine David must have been praying this on the Mount of Olives up above Jerusalem as he saw his son and his soldiers coming into the royal city and taking over the temple and taking over the throne. But thou, O Lord, art my shield. you want to know where David's heart turned? It wasn't into doubt. It wasn't. He entrusted himself to God. You are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cry aloud to the Lord and He answers me from His holy hill. What is this holy hill? He's just climbed up the Mount of Olives to the place where there was a high place, a place of worship. Huh? Again, context, context, context. Of course, we know that Absalom eventually was riding his horse under an oak tree. His cloak caught on the oak tree. His horse ran off, and he was left there hanging by the tree. And one of David's soldiers went up and pierced Absalom through the heart. Absalom died. And David did return to the throne. But I have to show you, there's a beautiful text. Um, it's here in my notes. Yeah, in 2 Samuel. So keep your hands into the Psalms and turn back to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 18. The reason I'm having you turn back and forth is because if you don't read this when you're reading the Psalms, you're not going to be able to really grasp what David is talking about. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 33. This is when David finds out that his son is dead. Verse 33, And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept as he went. He said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you Absalom my son my son if you want to read the Psalms if you want to have a friend to help you read the Psalms your friend is David David struggled like each one of us struggles he struggled to the depths of his heart and there in the depths of his heart who did he find who did he turn to time and time again he turned to the Lord when David returned to the throne, he uh, was challenged also by the Philistines. Uh, and you can just write it down, Second Samuel chapter 22. But eventually he overcame the Philistines. And we have in the Psalms his book of praises. So I want you to turn to Psalm 106. Psalm 106. And I'm just going to scan some psalms with you because they give you a sense of David and his love for the Lord. Psalm 106. And I'm just going to read you the first verses of these, of these psalms. I think you'll get the point. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. We saw that, didn't we? When He enthroned the ark in the tent, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Take a look at Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. The Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. This is at the heart. I mentioned to you about the faithfulness of God and His covenant union with David. This is David's heart always remained. His eyes always remained upon the Lord. Psalm 108. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. That's David's response to the steadfastness of the Lord. And Psalm 111. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who have pleasure in them. This gives you a sense of why the ancient Hebrew people did not call this the Psalter. They called it the Book of Praises. The Tehillim. The Book of Praises. This is David's gift as he writes down the Psalms, offering himself to the Lord who has protected him. The praises as... Professor Reinhardt mentioned, these are meant to be sung. And why are they meant to be sung? Because song touches the depth of the soul. And you know this. When you hear a song from your childhood, especially one that you listen to at those most critical moments, this is, we're about to hear all those beautiful Christmas hymns that are so heart-touching. We remember them from our childhood. And I'll share with you a quotation from, from Father Ronald Knox. He says, of all the influences which have the power to restore the past, none works upon us more easily than the gift of song. When David ascended the mountain of the Lord and restored his throne, take a look at Psalm 120. Psalm 120. And notice the title above, one, one, uh, above Psalm 120. What do you see there? A song of ascent. ascent. These are the songs, it's the psalms, and you'll see from 120 all to all the way to 136 or 134, and 136 kind of comes, 35 and 36 come out of it. These are the psalms of ascending Jerusalem. Again, these are would, would have been the, the hymns. Which the people of God memorized and sang as they made their way up to Jerusalem three times each year. But again, I believe that seeing them through the eyes and the heart of David as he, as he makes his way, you can read in 2 Samuel, crossing the Jordan River again. He had been exiled out into the desert and making his, his way up the mountain of Jerusalem. They would sing these Psalms, the people did, and I believe, I believe they sang them because because of their heart and their attachment to King David himself, who ascended that holy mountain. Just take a look at me at, with me at Psalm 121 and imagine yourself ascending that holy mountain. I gave this beautiful, this beautiful picture of Jerusalem. It's a picture today, but you can get a sense of it and that desire to ascend the mountain of Jerusalem. Listen to this. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills from whence does come my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Look at Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Going to Jerusalem is always going up. Because you're ascending to the dwelling place of God Himself. Psalm 123, To Thee I lift up my eyes, O Thou who art enthroned in the heavens. Psalm 124, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against us. Those are the words of a man who has struggled, who has battled for his throne. Look at Psalm 136. Psalm 136 comes back then to that text I read you from 1 Chronicles. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. I want to talk to you about applying this text in just about 30 seconds or 60 seconds. I want you to keep that in mind. Ascending Jerusalem being relieved of the, of the attack of your enemies and being restored to your throne, being restored to the holy city and the dwelling place of God Himself. As I said, these are Psalms of Ascent were repeated three times by the Jews who went up to Jerusalem for the great, three great feasts. Turn to Psalm 118, which is one of those great psalms that was sung there in Jerusalem on the feast of, of tabernacles which was used always for the enthronement of the king. For the enthronement of the king. Psalm 118. O oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say His steadfast love endures forever. And I'm going to just have you skip with me. You could read the whole psalm, but look at verse 26. Blessed is he who enters in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Where do you remember those names from those words from Catholics? Holy yeah, from the Holy Mass. But I want to challenge you. What do those words mean? What is their original context? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Who is the one who is blessed To come in the name of the Lord. The King of Israel. This was the psalm that was chanted over and over again at the feast of the enthronement of the King. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Look at verse 27. The Lord is God and He has given us light. Bind the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. Bind branches together. When the the king was enthroned in Jerusalem, they would take branches in their hand, waving them in the air, chanting this psalm, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Catholics. What are you thinking of? Palm Palm Sunday. Absolutely. The enthronement of the king. The enthronement of the king and primarily the enthronement of King David after the attack of his adversaries. The Psalms of David, Father Knox says, are as it were the church's nursery rhymes. It is on that music that she falls back for consolation. Why? Because the church, the early church, saw herself not as breaking from Judaism, but as fulfilling it. The early church saw what she was doing in her life as the fulfillment of of what the Jews had only hoped to be able to do. And what did they hope to be able to do? Restore the Son of David to His throne that He might rule in the midst of His people. It is in this context that the church prays, in the context of David's victory over his enemies, in the context of David's enthronement as king, in the midst of his people in the royal city. And it is in this context that the psalms begin to make sense for us. To see through the eyes of David, or maybe better to say, to see through the heart of David. I want to just make a quick application for you before we're done. And I'm sorry I'm going a little bit long, but I just beg of you a couple of minutes because I think you'll find it well worth it. A quick application to Christ and to the Mass. When we sing, blessed is He... Who comes in the name of the Lord. Keep your hand in the Psalms and turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. Uh, What did I say? 23, verse 37. This is Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent to you. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken and desolate for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Catholics... Turn back with me to Psalm 132. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardship he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the Mighty One of Jacob, I will not enter my house or go into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes nor slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the Mighty One of Jacob. Lo, we heard it in Ephrathah, We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to thy resting place, thou and the ark of thy might. Let thy priests be clothed with righteousness and let thy saints shout for joy. For thy servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of thy anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back one of the sons of your body, I will set upon your throne. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When the people of Jerusalem began to shout that from the rooftops and wave their festal branches in the air, they knew exactly what they were doing. They knew that Jesus was a direct descendant of David and a rightful heir to the throne. One of the sons of your body I will set upon your throne. The Psalms of David, Father Knox says, are as it were the church's nursery rhymes. It is on that music that she falls back for consolation. And here is the problem that today we as Catholics for the most part do not pray the Psalms. For the most part, we do not pray the liturgy of the hours in which the church gives us the Psalms to regulate our day. How is it that we can fall back upon them again as a nursery rhyme if we did not read them as children? Again, Father Knox, The psalter has become a great organ of human sentiment, upon whose stops the Holy Spirit varies the moods of divine melody. Imagine for a moment a devout Jew reading the psalter, reading the same phrases that you read. Think what those phrases meant to him and what they mean to you. Thus, each of us, as he goes through the psalter, can trace in it a kind of secret code, a cipher by which God and the soul speak to one another. And this is what we need. We must regain. But to do that, we must know the life of David. We must know and be able to live the life of ancient Israel called called salvation history. And then we must meditate upon those psalms in application to our own life. And not just apply them to our life, but sing them so that those Psalms of David can touch the very depths of our heart. I'll leave you with this thought. Sir William Wallace, the Scot, you know from the modern movie Braveheart, was a Catholic. It is said that he was educated by his mother from his earliest childhood. And his mother gave him as a gift A handwritten copy of the Psalter. He kept it on his person every day of his life. And when he was taken captive and stripped, when he was going to be put to death, they were going to tear his entrails out from him. He stood up and asked that the Psalms be brought to him. So that as he was being martyred, he could look and read those words which were his own nursery rhymes. Those words which had given him consolation from his earliest days. This is what we must regain, Catholics. We must regain this. And the only way to do that is to return to the Psalms as our book of prayer and then read them with our friend, who is King David. And when we do that, when we do that, when we see through his eyes, when we live through his heart, then we will also be able to sing with him. How beautiful it would be when we enter into the temple of the Lord, the church, to sing those praises on our knees before the Lord. This is what we must restore. This is what the church calls us to restore. All right, thank you very much.
0: We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work,